At 36 weeks pregnant, Jen Shannon didn't feel her baby moving, so she rushed to the nearest hospital. They had did an ultrasound and found out that the baby's heart rate was declining. They rushed her into an emergency C-section, and Hazel was born. They later found out that she had a long medical road ahead of her. She had something called esophageal atresia, and she was repaired at Boston Children's Hospital using the Fokker process. This is the first time I had ever even heard of such a thing, but her story is one of strength and resilience and never giving up on her baby. So I'm so honored to introduce you to Jen and Hazel's 22Q story. Hello and welcome to the 22Q podcast. My name is Becky White and today we have Jen with us. She is a mother of a 22Q cutie and she's here to share her story and her family with us. So Jen, thank you so much for being on and please introduce yourself. Well, first off, thanks for having me. Um, my name's Jen Shannon. I'm from Lily, PA. It's about an hour and a half west from Pittsburgh. I live with my husband and my dog, Jerry Lee, and of course, my baby, Hazel. Nice. How old is Hazel? Hazel is, um, she just turned 11 months. She will be a year in April. So you are still in it, mama. I am. You are. I like- am brand new to the club. So welcome first and congratulations on Hazel. And I can't wait to hear all about her. So what do you do for work? Um, So I actually work for a residential group, well, residential agency that runs group homes for the developmentally disabled. Um, I've been working there for about five years. So like way long before Hazel. Um, (laughs) I feel like that was a God thing because I have a lot of experience with disabilities um, before I became pregnant. So you're still working. They have been super great with me, fortunately. That's Um, so nice. Yeah. I was off for four months while in the NICU and I got to come back. Mm -hmm. Um, Fortunately, I have nursing that comes in during the times my husband and I work during the day. So I'm super blessed for that. So I'm still able to work. That's great. That's great. So I'd love to hear about Hazel. So why don't we start right at the beginning when you first found out you were pregnant? So in 2018, Zach and I were married. In our minds, we were going to get pregnant right away. Um, That didn't work out. We spent three years um, trying to conceive, and then we ended up doing IVF, and we got Hazel. IVF was a really tough process, um, very long and drawn out. But then when I became pregnant, we were so excited. We told everybody, and from our eyes, everything seemed perfectly fine until we went in for our 20-week ultrasound, and the ultrasound tech kept going in and out of the room, and she was like, oh, like, I have to go check on something, and the second time that she did it, I said, is everything okay, and she said, yeah, I think um, I'm just not seeing everything. And I remember my stomach dropping and she's like, this is normal. Sometimes when we do the 20 week ultrasound, we ask moms to come back because, you know, the baby's moving and everything. Well, I got home and I read the ultrasound report and it said that there was no visible, no visible stomach. And I kept reading into it and it mentioned about esophageal atresia. 
And that's just basically when, not that the baby has no stomach, but that she wasn't swallowing any fluid. And so the the stomach wasn't visible in the ultrasound. Yeah. So they told you they weren't seeing everything and then didn't tell you in the appointment what was happening. They just handed you a piece of paper and then you had to read it. No, no, no. Uh, There's like an app. There's an app where you can go and go and look yes at the portal or whatever it is it's like a portal and it says all of your results well fortunately well I don't know it was released to my portal before I could talk to a doctor okay so you just saw the tech yes she didn't give you the full scenario so then you immediately go to your phone on the portal your health portal this is an hour later yes and you read that they there was no finding of the stomach of the baby Correct. So what happened next? Did they tell you to come back in a week? Well, I immediately called my local OB and I was like, what is going on? And she was like, well, like, let's just calm down. Like I haven't heard anything, you know, like trying to deescalate the situation a little bit. And then um, she read it and she was like, okay, um, we're going to schedule you for a, an ultrasound in Pittsburgh at McGee Women's. And so, so at that point, yeah, at that point, <laughs> what are you thinking? I. I just started to like sob, like ugly cry. And I can remember being like, oh my gosh, like I wish my husband was here <laughs> because I was like begging him, don't come. But anyway, they marched me down to like an office down the hall and it's a genetic counselor. And she's talking like, hey, like maybe it would be best if you terminated your pregnancy. And I looked at her and I was like, I just don't want to talk about this right now. Like, can I come back? And so um, I did. That's what I did. I ended up going home that day. So you went home. You, I, did you cry the entire way home? What were you thinking on that long drive back home? I, well, it turned out that that day I had already planned for a gender reveal. oh honey I know so like everybody was coming to my gender reveal and so I was like oh um I didn't tell anybody besides my husband like what happened and I just like went to my gender reveal that night and you faked it yeah oh that must have been awful it was like it was horrible it was so bad. Um, but like at that point, I didn't want to. Everyone was so excited. Yeah. It took me so long to get pregnant. Like I just didn't know how to respond or like process or where to start telling people because you didn't even have a full answer of what was going on. Yeah. Like what do you even, what do you say? Yeah. yeah. So, oh, wow. So you went to the gender reveal. And then after that, when did you have your next ultrasound? Um, they did them about every four weeks and each week, I can remember one of the weeks in there, I can't remember specifically, but I went and they were like, oh, she has a small stomach this time. So like maybe she is swallowing. And um, there was a time where they, they can see practice swallows, like in the and they were like, oh, well, she's trying to swallow and I can see it go down part, part of her esophagus. So I think 
um, I think she might be okay. And then after that, when, what did they decide for the delivery plan? Where were you going to deliver was, and did they find anything else throughout the next couple ultrasounds leading up to the delivery? Yes. So they saw, um, one of the kidneys was dilated, but like very mildly, they told me, you know, that can be a normal finding and then correct itself after birth. So I was like, okay, like, that's not so bad. Um, they weren't worried about it at all. They told me that they wanted me to deliver in McGee women's because there was still that possibility with the small stomach. I also had extreme like amniotic fluid and so big because my amniotic fluid was, I think they said three to four times the amount they were actually talking about me draining some of that, but that was very risky. I did the NIPT test, which is tested, which just tests for um, Down syndrome and the trisomies. And that came back normal. And I can remember my high-risk OB telling me um, if it's esophageal atresia, usually it's not connected to genetic issues besides Down syndrome. So if it's not Down syndrome, I think you're okay. Which um, learning more about um, what Hazel has, it's not it's normally not connected to 22Q. So I didn't know that she had 22Q until after she was born. But um, I was supposed to deliver at McGee Women's and I went down to the Altoona Hospital, which was not my birth, was not my birth plan at all, but I hadn't feel, felt Hazel moving and I just wanted to go to the like closest local you know, place. And I'm sorry, what week were you on when you started not to feel her moving? I was 36 weeks exactly that day. I went down to the Altoona hospital and I basically just laid it all out there. Like I haven't felt her move all day. I don't know what's going on. I've done everything. They did an ultrasound and then they also hooked me up to the monitor and her heart rate was not accelerating. I guess it's supposed to every so often go up 15 beats and then come back down. It just shows that their heart rate is fluctuating and working and they're moving around, but hers wasn't. And it actually started dropping. So I'm glad that I got there. They did an emergency C-section and like I was not prepared for that at all. They like cut my clothes off and people were running everywhere. Um, and I woke up and I just like woke up in a stretcher and I was in a, in a waiting room and I was like, where's my baby? Like, it was just horrific. It was so bad looking at it now. Like, I don't know how I got through that, but, um, were you by yourself? I was by myself. Did you, did they let you call anyone? No. Um, they said this is an emergency. Her heart rate's like dramatically dropping. And I kept like, I didn't really believe that. I think I was in denial. Like, oh, like, I think I was like, well, I think that's my heart rate. Like, I think that it's moving off of her heart rate and it's showing mine, which, you know, like is in the eighties normally. And they were like, no, honey, like it's dropping. Um, We have to deliver right now. Oh my gosh. So they put me under general anesthesia to deliver and when I woke up, the doctor was like, that's the fastest delivery like I've ever done. I think it was in total 10 minutes from the time, like we took you in and got the baby out. Like it was, it was really bad, but I woke oh up, gosh. I woke up and my husband was there and they wouldn't let me see the baby. They told me that 
um, they tried to put a feeding tube down just to see if her, she had an entire esophagus, but it wouldn't go down, which confirmed that she had esophageal atresia, um, which is um, two pieces. You have an upper piece of your esophagus and then a bottom piece coming up from your stomach and like the, the middle, there's usually a big gap in there. Um, her gap was significant. It ended up being three centimeters. Um, they took her to Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh and I had to unfortunately stay in Altoona for a few, a few days because I needed blood. Um, I wasn't able to see her, but my husband went out to Pittsburgh to be with her and they had to place a, a G tube right away just because, you know, that was the only way she was going to eat before she was repaired. Um, we got to Pittsburgh and after that, it was just a blur. I can't even remember. Everything just happened all at once. So, so Hazel is now at the Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh. Right. You're in Altoona. It takes a few days for you to recover from your C-section and then you reunite with them. In- yeah in Pittsburgh, what was the first thing they needed to take care of with her in those first couple days? Just to get her eating um, because she was on TPN um, and then they placed a G-tube. They went in, well, actually she was only 36 weeks. So they just told me She's too small to even assess her esophagus because at this, she's only five pounds. Um, at this weight, we wouldn't even fix it anyway. So we're gonna place a G-tube so she can eat. Um, and I was pumping and giving her, you know, my breast milk through her G-tube. And they didn't even check her esophagus, I believe, until May 11th. So she was born April 9th and they checked it May 11th. And that's when they told me her gap is three centimeters long. They told me um, a lot of information that I know I now know that's incorrect. It's just because they don't see this very often. They said that as she would as she grows, her esophagus might grow together, and they could repair it and connect it much easier. And right now, they were like, "Let's just wait until she grows." So I stayed in Pittsburgh for two months. Um, I joined all of these esophageal atresia groups, and that's when I learned about Boston Children's Hospital, and um, CHOP also has a esophageal atresia clinic and airway clinic. I was fighting with insurance for a very long time. I think, like, I put all my hours in. (laughs) I was telling my husband, I spend 25 hours on the phone. I spend 25 hours on the phone with them, and then I finally got approved to go there. They had to write a letter of medical necessity um, because what Pittsburgh actually wanted to do was they wanted to connect, they wanted to raise her stomach up to make her esophagus shorter, which would that would pretty much make her stomach in her chest because like your your esophagus would be so short then. So I, I definitely didn't want to do that because I, I I would get on my groups and be like, what's the prognosis for if she would have this done? And a lot of moms were like, I actually ended up in Boston to have that um, undone and my child can never eat from it. I mean, they, there's just significant damage done. I was at that point after talking to the moms that had the gastric pull up, I said, I'm, I no longer, like I, 
I'm not doing this. I remember the Pittsburgh doctors coming in for consent and I would say no. Um, Good for you. You did your homework in an extremely stressful situation. You were probably beyond exhausted and yet you still looked for answers where you couldn't find them. And those mom support groups, those support groups in general is not just mom. So those Mm -hmm. support groups on Facebook are so wonderful because you get real life, real time answers from parents that are going through similar, or if not the same situation you are. So that is fantastic. And good for you for staying on the phone for 24 hours with insurance and (laughs) and fighting. That is not easy. I've done the same and it's a lot. It is. It's a lot. So you finally get to Boston. Yes. Okay. Finally get to Boston children's. And what does the team there decide? Um, they actually do a process. It's called the FOCAR process, um, F-O-K-E-R. Um, but it is, um, it was started by Dr. Foker, who was from Boston. Um, he, he's retired, he's long retired, but he has taught Boston how to do this. And now Boston is trying to I think that's why they they moved to CHOP recently. Just in July, one of the surgeons has started in a soft gel atresia and airway team in CHOP. If I had, if it, I had Hazel just a little bit later, I could have stayed in PA, but I ended up in Boston and um, they looked at her esophagus and they started the process. So it took 17 days. Um, she was paralyzed and sedated for most of it, not under general anesthesia, but like paralytics, um, just um, stuff to calm her down so she wouldn't be awake. So one, they would take one end of the esophagus and the other, and they would put sutures in it, um, like tied together. And so that would cause the esophagus to grow together. And the esophagus is actually one of the only organs that will grow under tension with time. Um, So in 17 days, um, her esophagus was back together um, and they were able to repair it. And um, shortly after that, that was around the four month mark, uh, three and a half, four month mark, she, we woke her up. We had a weaner off pain meds. That was very, very tough um, because she had been on them for how long now? And um, uh, I actually got to feed her for the first time. And that was just amazing. Uh, and she ate. So, yeah. Yeah. Did you feed her from a bottle or? I fed her from a bottle. Yeah. Oh, that must have been such a sweet It was such moment. a sweet moment. Yes. You're going to make me cry. I know. <laughs> I know. That is. So how old was she once she was repaired in Boston? She was three and a half months. Three and a half months. Um, they didn't waste any time. When I got to Boston, they waited like, I want to say five days until they started her repair. Um, so I'm sorry. She was three and a half months from the 36 week point. Correct. Yes. So yeah. she's really still super tiny. Oh yeah. Yeah. She was, I think during her repair, she was nine pounds. Oh my gosh. Itty bitty thing. She was. um, Isn't that remarkable that they can do that? Yes. Were you in awe of the doctor? I I was in awe because I just knew 
how big of a deal this process was to get her to eating like a, you know, like a normal child. But mm-hmm. we still have some bumps in the road. So we follow up at CHOP. And Hazel was also born with a congenital stricture. So it's a distal congenital stricture. So it was like at the bottom of her esophagus, there's uh, very, there's narrowing. Um, it's a very small spot, but she's not able to eat hard foods or, or you know, things right now that a typical one-year-old might be eating. She could have purees and milk and she's growing very well based off of that. But unfortunately, she really wants to eat, which is a good thing, but she can't right now until we get that fixed. So we are going to fix that the end of May. Good. And will that be at CHOP or Boston Children's? Um, CHOP. The surgeon, CHOP. the surgeon at CHOP, well, that's from Boston that moved there to start his practice. Um, he's so great. I esteem. Do you mind saying his name just so that? Yes. Other- <laughs> Dr. Yeah. Mike, Dr. Michael Manfredi, um, M-A-N-F-R-E-D-I. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, he's, he's great. And what he'll end up doing is he'll cut little slits into the esophagus, like the bottom part, place sponges, and then she'll grow into like, as it heals, it'll grow wider. Wow. Um, but wow. during that time with the sponges, she's going to need a wound back. So it'll be hooked up to continuous suction, all the good stuff. <laughs> I'm not really looking forward to being there for, I think it's three weeks, two or three weeks, but I wow. made it four months. So I think I should be fine this time. <laughs> Just brings back a lot of memories. It's I know. a fun time. I worry about you. You worry about me? I do because you're still in it. You're still in, I'm tearing up because I remember being in it too. And you just go through the motions and I just hope that you're finding time for you to decompress and also process what's happening. Cause it's scary. Very scary. Yeah. What are you doing for you? Um, I don't know. I'm trying to get back in shape. I think that's not really for me though like it is aren't we all yeah um I gained like a significant amount of weight um yeah I gained like 60 pounds when I had my um my guy and I was stress eating for sure it was my outlet like I had ice cream every night pretty much (laughs) every night Uh, yeah it was was that and and like in my mind I was like oh I deserve this like this is what I deserve but neither here nor there. This is about you. So, um, <laughs> no, like I, I, yeah. I have a Peloton. I've been trying to Peloton, but good for you. It's not easy. It's not like it used to be before a child. And this is my no. first child. No, very, very, very traumatized. Mm-hmm. I want to have another child, but it's like, I don't even want to think about, like, I couldn't even begin to fathom that right now. So no. you're in it and you still have a very serious operation coming up. Mm-hmm. that's yeah. going to take a lot so will you stay at chop while your husband stays home and works yeah he'll come out on the weekends yeah and that's kind of how it happened in mm-hmm. Pittsburgh like he had to work and mm-hmm. I stayed out there and he would come as much as he could he right. offered a lot of support um mm-hmm. it's still hard it was still hard being out there alone yeah absolutely yeah well it sounds like you have an amazing medical team which is the first battle 
in all of this and really keeping a close eye on Hazel, which is great. Other than that procedure in May, is there anything else that she's struggling with with at this moment, at this point in time? No, not really. I mean, okay. she's developmentally maybe a couple months behind and that scares me, but she's crawling. She's strong. She's so strong. She's big. She's like a 22Q growth chart. She's above that and she's gaining weight and she loves okay. to eat. Um, That's great. So, and I know like just from hearing your podcast and like hearing all the other, you know, moms, eating is a huge, huge challenge. Um, right. And fortunately, Hazel doesn't have a heart condition. She has a small, tiny PDA. They're not worried about it, but I don't know which would be worse, neither here nor there, you know. Mm-hmm. From being in the ICU before and knowing that you're going to be heading into a surgery for three weeks in May, what do you hope for and what do you need from your community? And for other people listening that have never experienced going into an ICU with your infant or child, and maybe they have a friend or a family member that is experiencing this and they just don't know what to do for them. What advice could you give to those individuals on the best way to help a parent during that time? That's a tricky question because I, I I do feel like everybody's different, but I think it is extremely important to step out of the room and do something like once a day, like have something on your schedule, like okay, like I'm going to go get my hair cut or like, I'm going to go to a favorite restaurant or, you know, I'm going to call this person because it's, you kind of get caught up in the room. So, and it can feel like a time warp. I I can't even like the first, I can't tell you how many times I've had social work, like come in and be like, you need to leave. <laughs> go do something like I'll watch your baby just please leave the room Um, yeah here's a gift card like just go somewhere you know yeah so it's it's hard it's so hard during your last 11 months what has Hazel taught you about yourself um I don't think that like I ever thought in in years I'd be part of like this community um but she's really taught me that life is so like fragile and you just kind of have to go out and do things that are uncomfortable because I don't think I was like never in a position where I had to like speak up for myself so and I don't mean to be getting emotional I did not think that I would be like sad talking about this I'm sorry you do not need to apologize this is your baby and what you went through my dear is a lot. It is. It is a lot with the delivery and fighting for her for her first surgery. And like I mentioned, like you're still in it. She's only 11 months. I know. And you're finding your advocacy voice. You've already found it, my dear. <laughs> you are a full blown advocate. So welcome to the club. <laughs> I just never like as um. I've never had to like put my foot down like I'm just a very you know laissez-faire person like okay like just very chill 
and having having to do that was super out of my comfort zone so I think it has taught me that everything isn't always going to be smooth sailing in my life in general so yes it's not especially (laughs) with a 22q cutie and you know your child and you know when something's wrong and you know when maybe the first opinion from a medical professional isn't the right one at this time and go get a second opinion. There's nothing wrong with get a, getting a second opinion. Right. Ever. And um, I don't even know how to put this, but I feel like everything that I have done, I had to fight for. And that scares me for when I'm not around. You know what I mean? Like my husband's not around. I'm not around. Is somebody that's taking care of her going to be like, this is, we'll just do this because the first doctor just, you know, it's a grief process. It's like this entire grief, like stages of grief. It is. It is. You first go through the, you're grieving the loss of a child you thought you were going to have. And that continues. It doesn't mean you love them any less. You love them more but you definitely go through an experience of grief and, and, and you'll, you'll get hit by it once in a while. And now you're, you're in the medical stuff right now, which is scary and so many decisions. And you had mentioned, you know, thinking about the future and, and wondering who's going to fight for my kid the way I fight for them. And I worry about that all the time too. And Mm -hmm. I, and I know almost every 22Q parent I've talked to worries about that as well. Um, and my biggest piece of advice that other people have given me is, is take it one day at a time. Cause for me, if I go down too deep into the dark, dark place, that is the future of unknowns and who will take care of my son someday. It's too dark. Mm-hmm. It's, it's too sad. And, and I don't know. I don't know what he'll be able to do. I don't know how independent he will be. And mm-hmm. we'll only know. How old is your son? He's eight. Is he? Okay. Yeah. So I, I don't know. We didn't know if he's going to walk. He's walking. We didn't know if he was going to talk. He started talking at six. So, oh, good. yeah. So it, it at the, t- at the time, like the time you're in now, it's scary. It's mm-hmm. scary. Okay biggest piece of advice I can give you is, is when you start to go down that dark place is just kind of try to take a deep breath and say one, one day at a time going to those places paralyzes me because mm-hmm. it's, it's so sad and unknown and scary. So it sounds like you have a really good support system mm-hmm. of people and it, how, what else has been helping you through this process? I'm the type of person that has to stay busy. Um, that's just who I am and like keep moving forward um I think I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse but like every morning I'll write down things I need to do for the day or who I need to call and or you know what work duty is 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 in for the day and that helps me stay grounded and focused um Mm -hmm. And I, I don't really know if that's like for me or if that's how I'm surviving. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. have you ever tried journaling? 
I have. You so have. when I was in the hospital um, with Hazel, the um, is it Child Life? I believe it's the Child Life program in Boston. Um, they're involved with like the parents and they come in and check how you're doing. And they gave me a bunch of stuff to journal. I just couldn't get into it. I couldn't, I couldn't like stay with it. I would miss it. I would like miss an entry. And then like in my head, I'm like, okay, well, gosh, I could never journal again. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm out of the club. I know. I know. So. Yeah. I found for me, yeah, I, did, I still do it. I, I just, when I'm in a doctor's appointment or when the rounds are coming around or whenever a doctor would enter, when we were in the NICU, I would always grab my journal and just jot down whatever they told me and the time and the day, just because you know how it is, you, your brain, like it becomes foggy and you start thinking like, did that doctor come on Wednesday or Sunday? And then <laughs> it's so good to have, yeah, that for me, it was so good to have that journal. And now even for doctor's appointments, I'll, I have a journal that I'll take to doctor's appointments just so I can like look back at it that night and be like, okay, so we need to get this test done. We need to start this medication, whatever it is. Um, I found that super helpful, but it's good that you have a support system. It's good that you have things set in place and, and you know, it's coming. And I'm so glad to hear she's doing well. She's gaining weight and that's really good. I had forgotten to ask you, how did you find out about Hazel's 22Q diagnosis? After she was born, my husband signed consent to take her blood to check for genetics. Um, the genetic team was in and out of our room. They had mentioned that she had micronathia, which was a, a small underdeveloped chin. Um, it's not so bad now, but it was definitely noticeable right when she was born. So they, oh, and a small, she had like a smaller mouth. Um, anyway, they came back one day and we're like, we're still waiting for, you know, genetics to come back. We're just stopping in and they got all of our history. Um, they asked Zach and I a whole bunch of questions and it kind of made me think something was wrong because of how they, so they took her blood at birth because of micronathia and then they would come back and, and check on us. And then they started asking us our history. And this was before the results came back. But um, one day, the rounding doctors were outside my room. And they came by every morning, like between 9.30 and 11. And the one physician said, oh, your genetics came back. Um, there was an abnormality in the 22nd chromosome. And at that point, like, I just could not handle one more thing. I was like what um and they were like well we'll have genetics come by later today and touch base with you and you know see see what's going on um so I waited all day in my room and I remember it was like 3 p.m and I looked at one of the nurses and I was like um you need to page genetics because I really need to talk to them like I cannot go in a day like I need to know what's wrong so um and God bless his soul, this man came up, and I think he was, like, newer to the genetics team, but he came in, and he brought Zach and I this packet, and he stood away from us, gave us the packet, and basically, like, flipped through it with us um, about what 22Q was, um, like, all the different 
the list and list and list of potential issues that could it could cause um and I was like is she gonna have everything like is she gonna have nothing and he's like I can't tell you like I don't know time Mm -hmm. will tell and it was just like this dark cloud um and I think I remember (laughs) sorry I think I remember too I was like what did I do what did I like I was so careful in Mm -hmm. everything I did and he was like oh it has nothing to do um I think that made me feel better when he was like oh it has nothing to do with what you did or didn't do right it's not your fault yeah but um I think that's hard today because when you have a kid with any special need I think the general public just thinks like what did that mother do? Like, what did the parent, you know what I mean? I don't know if Mm -hmm. you've forgotten that feeling, but. um, Yeah, I've never gotten that feeling, but I definitely got the feeling of what did I do wrong? Did I, did I do something earlier on in my life that caused this? Right. And I, oh yeah, I definitely had that guilt. Definitely carried that for a while. I would just go through my mind, like, oh, like, did I come in contact with this, this, and like, I would write it down like things yeah. I thought maybe I think the worst thing ever was like my husband was like painting something outside I was like maybe I like breathed in <laughs> like it's this yep. crazy cycle of like oh my gosh I went for a run when I was <laughs> eight weeks pregnant <laughs> and when I went for the ultrasound two weeks later I was like oh my god it was because of that run and the doctor's like no it wasn't because he ran this is a genetic <laughs> chromosomal thing do you feel like you still carry that guilt yes and no it's definitely gotten better um when I first got the diagnosis like I didn't want to talk about it with anybody because how can I talk to someone else about it if like I don't I don't even know I I don't even know all the details of what's wrong with Hazel or what could potentially be wrong there's a lot of questions that come with it like you know what's this mean what's it and it's just like I can explain it but I feel like if I can't back it up in Hazel's case as in you know what could be wrong in the future it's just hard to talk about if you could stand on stage and just let the world know something about 22q or Hazel or something that you wish people would not do or say what would that thing be I think that (laughs) a lot of the times people don't mean to be toxically positive, but they are Um, just like way too like, oh, like she's just going to turn out just fine. And as much as I want to believe that, that's like kind of dismissing. Yeah. What do you wish people would say? I don't know. That's a good question. I'll be here for you. I'll this be sucks. Here for you. This sucks. Yes. Just kind of join you in your grief. Yes. Mm-hmm. But I also like, I try not to be so doom and gloom because Hazel is so cute. I know. And she's, she's <laughs> like turning out pretty normally right now. I mean, she's babbling. She's crawling around the floor she's playing with toys appropriately there's a lot of things that 
are good about what's happening. And so I kind of also wanted to be on the podcast because although I'm going through this, there there are a lot of positives that are happening in day-to-day life with her. Mm-hmm. Just watching her some, grow. Yeah. yeah. What is something that you like love doing with her? We giggle. <laughs> we giggle. Um like I'll make faces or I'll play peekaboo or like if I'm feeling really down I can remember a time where she was a delayed smiler like she I think around three months she smiled for the first time and at two months I was like falling to my husband crazy like oh she'll never smile she'll never do this she'll never walk she'll and like when she smiled for the first time that was such a big deal but now when she giggles like I don't know it's like it reminds me of like me telling that to my husband mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah um, um and also sorry no go ahead um I'm I'm enjoying Hazel where she is right now in the beginning I think I was so like she's not doing this but she should be and I was missing the whole point mm-hmm. like Comparing. enjoying um, enjoying my baby Mm-hmm. So just was important for me to mention that it's not all doom and gloom and you know I have a baby and she's beautiful and she's growing and she's doing well right now mm-hmm. and, and I'm just like trying my my hardest to be thankful for where she's at and not just like keep wishing her baby stages away although yeah. she should be doing this but she's not like she's gonna get there yep so I remember throwing away the expectation list of milestones because I followed it. Oh yeah. I followed it for about four months. No longer than that. I followed it for about six months to eight months. And then I remember one day in my kitchen, um, our early intervention left the house Mm -hmm. and I just threw the list away and it was so liberating for me (laughs) to do that. Because I kept going back to it. Like you said, you keep going back to the typical stages of where your child should be. And I, like you said, wasn't enjoying the present, which can be so hard when you have medically fragile child. So keep just enjoying the moments because they go by so fast. They do. I still remember like her being even smaller than she is. She's so busy. Oh my goodness. She's, she used to just want to lay in my arms and like cuddle and, and now it's like, I can't get her to be that way. And I'm like, but when I was in that stage, I wished that away. I wish she was doing what she was now. Um, and so like, it kind of grounded me. So mm-hmm. yeah. And what advice could you give other 22Q parents that may have just found out they were diagnosed today, what advice could you give them? To take time to process. You don't have to go tell anybody. Like that's not, that's not, it's not a requirement that you go out and tell the world. There's no timeline for grief. Like I'm still grieving um, and that it does get better. Although you feel like it will never, (laughs) it does. Great advice. Yeah. And if you could go back in time to when that doctor was doing those rounds and gave you the news that your baby had 22Q, what would you 
say to yourself in that moment while you're panicking in the hospital room waiting for the geneticist? What would you say to yourself if you could go back in time? To not use Google. <laughs> I didn't tell you that part, but I Googled like abnormalities of the 22nd chromosome. Um, what could it be? And it, like, oh, it was all this stuff. But then it came up to George in 22Q. And I was like, I have a feeling she has this just from based off the looks of other babies. Um, I wish if I, if I could go back to that day, I would have demanded answers then. I would have, instead of being in sorrow for how many hours from like nine o'clock until three that day, I would have just been like, listen, this is really bothering me. And I feel like back then I didn't have such a big voice that I have now. You know, that's how I grew into how like advocating for Hazel in the first place because of situations like that, where a lot of doctors, they just to realize things that they're saying to parents because to them, you know, they're doing this every day. But to me, this is the first time that I'm going through like a medical crisis with a child, you know? Definitely. And that's a really good point is that they do this every day. They mm -hmm. see 22Q, they see Down syndrome, they see all these things and mm -hmm. they don't, maybe they didn't realize how impactful that and scary that was for you in that moment. But thank you for sharing that. And Jen, I wish you guys nothing but the best and good luck in May with the surgery. Please keep me posted and I'll keep Hazel in my prayers, but mm -hmm. thank you so much for being on today and sharing Hazel with us. And I just wanted to say good luck with everything. and. Thank you again. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye, Becky. Jen, thank you so much for sharing Hazel's story with me today. And I wish you all nothing but the best. You are an incredible mom and your husband is incredible as well. And I just want to say, take care of yourself, keep going and know that you're not alone in this journey. I learned so much about esophageal atresia today and the Folker process and I hope that I can share that with other families that are going through this in the future. So thank you and keep up your determination and never ever forget that you're not alone. Thank you again. And to our audience, thank you so much to all of our listeners for following and sharing and liking our podcast. You are helping to raise awareness about 22Q and it means so much to me. So thank you so much. And if you'd like to reach me, you can reach me at 22QPodcast at gmail.com with any questions or concerns, or if you're interested on being on the podcast, feel free to email me and never forget 22Q family that you are not 